If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 9. I don't know about you, but um, I wonder sometimes, even to this day, after all these years of serving on ministerial staff and now almost seven years as your pastor, I wonder sometimes why certain stories are in the Bible. <laughs> I, I, I wonder why would God choose to put this particular story in His Word? I'm actually amused at times when people will say to me, oh, you know, you say that God inspired that Bible. We know it was just a book written by people to try to drum up interest in Christianity and to get people to, to, to be committed to your religion. And I want to laugh because some of the stories in the Bible are not exactly flattering. I mean, who would have chosen to put in the story of Peter denying his Lord three times? Who would have wanted to put in the story of Judas Iscariot betraying his master? And that's kind of what we have in this story. This morning in our Bible study time, you looked at this fresh start that God gave to Noah. And I don't know about you, but whenever I read that, I had this picture in my mind, this picture of, of, of Noah and his sons and their wives standing by this altar with the ark in the background and the, the rainbow overhead. And they just look so, so angelic, so saintly. Some of the pictures even have angels in the distance. And you see this beautiful picture, and it just seems so perfect. And then we get to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 and following, and we realize the fact that it really isn't exactly the kind of story that we would have thought. Now, is it? We just heard the passage read a few minutes ago. I want us to dig into it today, and I want us to ask ourselves, why is this story here? I think we get the answer to that question in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but let me just read for you. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking about stories from the Old Testament. Now, he doesn't refer specifically to the Noah story, but he's mentioned several stories. And twice in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he says this. First of all, in verse 6, Now, these things became examples for us so that we will not desire evil things as they did. And then again, down in verse 11, he says, Now, these things happened to them as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So I believe the reason these stories that kind of embarrass us are here in the Bible is to serve as examples for our lives. So today, as we look at Noah and his three sons, my prayer is that we will not only have our minds challenged, but also our hearts will be touched, and most importantly, our wills will be challenged to conform to what we hear and what we learn and see the examples from these men's lives and apply them to ours, okay? So with that, let's get started. In verse 18 of chapter 9, we have a shift in emphasis. From this point up to now, this story has been all about Noah and Noah's relationship with God. His sons were merely just an afterthought. Now we have Noah himself and his sons. And it says in verse 18, Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole world was populated. So now we're beginning to see there's going to be a shift onto the sons, but God's not finished with Noah yet. We're going to hear a little bit about him still before we're done. So Noah comes out of the ark with his wife and his sons and his sons' wives, and they make a sacrifice of thanks. They see the promised covenant represented by the rainbow. 
and they live wonderful, happy, righteous lives serving and loving God, right? That's exactly what happens. Well, no, that's not exactly what happens. Look at what it says in verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. Now, I want to stop right there. You know that I am a firm advocate of using the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation of the Bible. However, I have to tell you, I don't like the way they translated this verse. Because it doesn't really say in the Hebrew language that he was the first to plant a vineyard. It says he began to plant a vineyard. And many scholars believe that that means that that was just the next thing that he did. I have a feeling, based on what Jesus said about, the, about Noah's day and what's again talked about in Paul, it says that they ate and drank and made merry. I have a feeling that prior to the flood, there were vineyards. I have a feeling that prior to the flood, they knew all about how to take grapes and take the juice from it and ferment it and make it into alcoholic drink. I don't think that was anything new with Noah. I thank Kyle and Dillich for their thoughts. Those are some commentators from the 19th century who tried to cut Noah a little bit of slack. But I believe that if we read this verse carefully, we understand exactly who Noah was. Because it says literally that Noah was a man of the soil. That doesn't just mean he was a farmer. It means he was human. He was fallible. He was a sinner. Even though Noah was the only righteous man along with his three sons and their wives on the entire planet, he still was a man of the earth. He still was a man of the soil. He still was sinful flesh. And he began to plant a vineyard. And what happened from the planting of that vineyard? Well, it tells us in verse 21, he drank some of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Now, we're going to stop here. Most commentators will tell us that this is not really the most important part of the story. The most important part is what happens to those three sons, and we'll get there in a minute. But I think there are things that we need to learn from this part of the story about Noah himself. I'm going to be very honest with you. I do not believe that Noah was deceived. I don't think he was tricked. The man was 600 years old, for heaven's sake. He had seen people get drunk before. He had seen people make wine put it in some kind of container, let it ferment, and drink it. Noah was not ignorant. It took years for those grapes to produce in order to make the grape juice that would be made into wine. This was not something that happened by accident. This was not something that happened in the spur of a moment. Noah was a man of the soil. And whether you believe, as some do, that that the, the sin of alcohol is using it to abuse, or whether you believe, as I do, that this is something we should stay away from. It is not good for us. We shouldn't be involved in it. The bottom line is Noah did not commit a sin out of ignorance. He drinks. He becomes drunk. He uncovers himself in his tent and passes out dead stone drunk, naked as a jaybird, in his tent. 600 years old. You would have thought the man knew better. Now you say, well, pastor, that's a pretty blunt statement. What does that have to do with us? Oh, <laughs> it has a lot to do with us. Because you see, there are many of us that can be just as righteous as Noah himself when we're out in public. Oh, my goodness. When we're standing against the storms of the world around us, we can stand for God. We can take our stand. We can be bold. We can stand up for what we know to be right. And then we get behind the closed doors of our own homes with our family, with people that we don't have to prove anything to. And oh my goodness, if our walls of our homes could talk, what would it say? 
what would it say? Anger, fighting, bickering, belittling. All the things that we do when we think no one can see. You see, Noah was a wonderfully righteous man. For decades, he stood firm, preaching the truth of the gospel, that a flood was coming, that people should repent while he was building this ark. And yet, when he was the only man left, he and his family, he sinned. <laughs> he had nobody else to blame for it. You know, we, we often say, well, you know, it's not my fault. I mean, I work around people who are really sinful and just kind of rubs off on me. Or, or you know, I, I don't, my, my, my spouse is not a Christian or my parents aren't Christians or, or my neighbors aren't Christians. And after a while, you just don't mean to, but you just fall into their patterns. Listen, Noah couldn't use any of those excuses. And neither can I. And neither can you. Because the truth of the matter is, sin does not happen because of what's outside of us. Sin happens because of what is inside of us. Noah's heart was deceitful and desperately wicked. Noah's mind was twisted by sin. And even though Noah was the only man left on the planet, he and his sons and his, their wives and their grandchildren, he still chose to sin against God. Now, I have a special word for those of you that are a little more mature in life. Maybe you're in your late 50s, 60s, 70s, even 80s. I know. I know some of those passions that tempted you when you were younger are not there, or at least not as strong as they used to be. Those jealousies, those lusts, those desires. And so you think, I'm past this. I don't have this problem anymore. I actually remember speaking to someone a few years ago that said, I just don't think I sin anymore. And I, I wasn't sure whether to be happy, laugh, or sad. Because, beloved, we are still prone to sin. It doesn't matter if you're 104. Satan still knows how to tempt us to sin against God. We are never beyond the scope of our sinfulness. And so please, just because your life may have changed, just because you have matured and you have learned and there are certain things that you put behind you, do not trick yourself into thinking that you are now somewhere beyond the scope of sin's ability to reach you. If a 600-year-old man can sin, so can a 60-year-old or a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old or a 40-year-old or a 20-year-old for that matter. All of us, every one of us is prone to sin, so we must be on our guard. Because the same God that tells us how we should live also promises those of us who have put our trust in Him that He will walk with us. That He will help us when we cry out to Him, when we're tempted with whatever sin it be, whether it be in our 20s or our 50s or our 80s. So what do we learn from this little passage about Noah? We learn that you're never too old to sin, that sin is not because of what happens outside of you, but because of what happens inside of you, and we need to be on our guard. We need to guard our hearts. Well, Noah was a sinner, and so was his son. Let's move on. Look at what happens in verse 22. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Let's talk about Ham for a minute. Then we're going to talk about Shem and Japheth for just a minute. Ham goes in. We don't know whether he went in on purpose or not. It may have just been by accident. Maybe he went in just to talk to his father. And he saw him there passed out, drunk, and naked. And the word saw is not really that special of a word, but it doesn't mean just glanced. It means he looked and saw. And then it says he went and told his two brothers 
outside. Now, what does that mean, told his brothers outside? Well, again, it's not extremely clear, but it sounds like from what we know and what we see in the passage that Ham not only went in and saw his father's situation, but he also went out and told his brothers in a mocking, disrespectful, disparaging way about his father's condition. Now, that's interesting. Here we have a man who had just gone through the greatest grace act up to that point in human history. God graciously sparing the eight of them. And yet, he disrespects his own father. He goes in, sees the condition, does nothing about it, does nothing to cover his father's shame. Instead, he goes out and makes light of what he has seen, deriding his father, disrespecting his father. But this isn't just about the fact that it was father and son, although I think that's an important part of the passage. He was making light of the sins of another person. Now hold that thought in your mind as we look at the other two boys, Shem and Japheth. Verse 23, it says, Then Shem and Japheth took a cloak and placed it over both their shoulders, and walking backward they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father naked. In other words, these boys, out of respect for their father, out of respect for the shame that he certainly would feel when he would awaken, even though he had sinned, even though he had done something that they knew, all of them knew should not have happened, they walked backwards, carefully holding the cloak over their shoulders so they could not see, and then laid the covering over their father so that he would be covered. Wow. What in the world do we make out of these three boys? Well, to be honest with you, I think what we see is we see two types of people. It's interesting, we saw those two types of people in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. There are people who are covered by God's grace, and we have people who are uncovered in their sin. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, first of all, they tried to conceal it. God says it won't work. God killed an animal, took the skin, covered them, not in a, not in a covering of concealment, but in a covering of confession, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Cain then commits a sin. His sin is uncovered because Abel's blood cries out from the ground, and Cain doesn't even start to ask for forgiveness. He just has pity on himself and feels sorry for himself and says, my punishment is more than I can bear. And so now we have a young man, Ham, and two men, Shem and Japheth, representing two types of people. Ham, who looks at the sin of his father, looks at the shame of that sin, and rather than feeling sorry or feeling like he wants to help or want to do something to alleviate his father's shame, instead derides him, disrespects him, mocks him, all of those things that bring him more shame to the shame that he already feels. And then we have the other two boys, Shem and Japheth, who represent those who feel for people who are caught in their shamefulness, caught in their sin. And rather than looking on that sin, rather than engaging in that sin, they cover it. And you know what they're doing? Do you see the picture? Whether or not they knew it or not, I think they probably didn't realize it, but we see it. They are modeling the very thing that God did for Adam and Eve. Do you see it? They cover the sin of their father with a cloak. Not to conceal it, but to acknowledge it. Wow. 
So now we have a father who reminds us that we can never be too careful, never be too confident in our own righteousness. One son who sees the sin of another and makes fun of it and derides it, and then two more sons who out of respect and out of sadness for their father's shame and sin cover his sin. Now, I've got to tell you, those same two types of people live today. And they're not Christians and non-Christians, okay? Even within us as believers, we have hams in our midst. We have people who will look at the sin of another person, and rather than feeling sorry or sad for them or praying for them or wanting to help them, we deride them, we ridicule them, we speak ill about them, especially people in positions of prominence. A well-known pastor has an indiscretion, commits a sin, and we sit around the breakfast table down at Denny's or at home, and we talk about them and speak ill of them. Someone within the church, a prominent leader in the church, or a Sunday school teacher, or even just a church member falls into a sin, falls into a problem, and they become the subject of the gossip chain. I hope that doesn't happen in our church, but it happens in a lot of churches. There are a lot of people that are just like Ham in the world today. And i got to tell you, God does not respect people who treat others who have fallen into sin with disregard and disrespect and disdain. But the other two sons are also found among Christians. People who see another person in their sin and know that they're feeling shame for that, know that they're feeling sorrow for that, know that they're feeling sadness over that, and rather than making their lives worse, rather than sticking a knife in and twisting it in their hearts, they take the covering of love and grace and forgiveness and the Word of God, and they go to that person and offer them the promise of God's forgiveness if they'll just confess and repent of their sin. And they go to them in love and humility, taking the cover of Christ's blood and offering it for the relief of their sin. Now, what happens with these boys when Noah comes to? Well, we find that out in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Canaan will be cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. Now, are you surprised that it's not Ham that's cursed? It's his, it's his son. It's Noah's grandson. Well, why Canaan? Well, we don't know for sure. There are any number of reasons why. Maybe he saw in Canaan the same traits that his father had. And he saw, you know, we all, in every culture, we have the, the old line, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In Africa, the Swahili phrase is, Mtoto wa simba ni simba. What that means is the child of a lion is a lion. But in every culture, we get this idea that, you know, the, 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 the offspring tend to mimic what they see from their parents. Maybe that was why. Maybe it was because they um, saw that because Ham had disrespected and shamed his father, Canaan in, terms would, in turn would shame his father by being cursed. Now, you got to remember, this was not a prophecy. This was a request. This was a prayer. Noah was praying that it was God's decision whether he would honor that prayer request or not from Noah that his grandson Canaan be cursed. And by the way, there's one other reason possibly why this happened. And for that, I want to take just a little footnote. Will you stop? Let me stop just for a second and give you a footnote to this. One of the roles that we have as preaching, as pastors, is to teach you how to study God's Word. And one of the things that's very interesting, and I've said this to you before, so I know this isn't new, is that anytime you look at a passage of Scripture, especially the Old Testament and the Gospels, 
but even so to a certain extent in the epistles, you need to think about three time frames. Number one, what did the story mean at the time it actually occurred? In this case, that would be literally Noah and his boys. What did it mean in their time? Secondly, what did it mean to the people who first received it in written form? You got to remember, Moses was sitting in the wilderness documenting these ancient stories that had been passed down for centuries by word of mouth and was writing them down into what we call the Pentateuch, these first five books of the law. So Moses is collecting these stories and writing them down so they will remember. And then thirdly, what does it mean to us when we read it today? So I want you to stop and think a minute about that second question. Moses is writing this story down about Noah and his two sons while they're sitting in the wilderness, wandering around in the wilderness, waiting to go into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. Thirty-five times the promised land is referred to as the land of Canaan. And now we see that Noah prayed a curse down on the man named Canaan, who is the father of the Canaanites, the sworn enemy of the Israelites, who, by the way, were descended from whom? From Shem, the one that was blessed, as we'll see in a minute. And so for those Israelites sitting in the wilderness, thinking there's no way we can beat those people, there's no way we can take that land that God had promised to our ancestor Abraham, there is no way we can go in there, Moses says, don't forget about the first Canaan, the one for whom the land is named. He brought a curse down on himself. His family was cursed, and his offspring were cursed, and they have rebelled against God to this day. And it gave them encouragement. And I'll get to that application in just a second. But in addition to the curse on Canaan, Ham's son, look at what it says in verse 26. Noah also said, praise the Lord, the God of Shem. Canaan will be his slave. God will extend Japheth. He will dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan will be his slave. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm also surprised in verse 26 that God didn't say, praise be Shem. It's praise the Lord. It's because Noah realizes that this isn't because of any righteousness that Shem has in and of himself. This is because of what God has done. This covenant God who has promised to keep the seed alive. You see, the bottom line, beloved, is this. Even though every single person on the planet was destroyed except for these eight souls, there was still sin on the planet. The only way God could have eradicated sin would have been to have taken these eight as well. But God couldn't do that. Why not? Because God had made a promise to Eve that her seed, her seed, would crush the serpent's head. So, 1,600 years later, when the flood comes, there has to be a seed left who would father the man named Shem, who would be the ancestor of a man named Abraham, who would be the ancestor of a man named David, who would be an ancestor of the man named Jesus. And so, that little thin thread through Noah was God fulfilling His promise. And so, God blessed Shem, the father of the Semitic people, comes from the word Shem, father of the Israelites. And so they saw in this story God's blessing on them, and they now will be able to fulfill what God had promised them by answering the prayer of Noah, and they would take possession of the land of Canaan. Well, it's time for us to finish up. So let's talk about what this means. I've already talked about the Noah part, so I'm going to leave that in your hearts for the Holy Spirit to work on. Let's talk about these boys and their two responses to sin. Number one, I think we need to remember how we treat people who fall into sin. Because, beloved, there's not a one of us who is immune to falling. 
I think if I were you and I was going to fall into sin, I would want people to give me grace. I know I would want to be given grace. I would want people to at least say, we understand you made a mistake. We're all sinners. We're going to pray for you. We're going to encourage you. We're going to help you get back on the right track. I understand that as a pastor, there are certain things that if we do, we become disqualified. I fully accept that. But there are a lot of sins that I commit every day. I get a little short-tempered. I tend to speak out of turn. I'm not always as thoughtful as I should be. And I want grace for that, and you probably do too. So we need to give grace, don't we? We want to receive it. We need to help people to cover the shame of their sin by finding forgiveness through the covering of Christ. You remember in the 32nd Psalm when David said, Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Covered by what? By a cloak of concealing? No. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives. But I want to tell you something else. The reason I took the time to talk about what this meant to those Israelites sitting in the wilderness is because we live in a world today where the spiritual Canaanites, as it were, seem to be thriving. And we feel like we are wandering around as a little handful of believers, faithfully trying to be obedient, faithfully trying to do what God would have us to do. And even the structures of government and society that we thought we could depend on have turned and have cast in their lot with the people of Canaan. But the bottom line is, the bottom line is, we are the ones who've inherited the promise. Paul tells us that we as the church are the offspring of Abraham. We are now the spiritual children of Abraham. We are the people who have inherited the promised blessing that God gave. And so we can look out at this world around us and see the evil of it and know that in the end, God will keep his promise. And God will restore the world the way he intends it to be. And we can live out our day every day trusting him, relying on him, believing in Him, obeying Him, serving Him, calling out to Him in order that we too might inherit the promised blessing. Now here's my question in closing. Who are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Maybe you're like Noah. Maybe you have dabbled in sin thinking, well, I used to have to be careful about my testimony, but I don't have to worry about it anymore. If they don't care about me now, if they don't know me by now, if they don't know who I am by now, I don't really care. You know what? It does matter. Your grandchildren and great-grandchildren may be watching you. Your children are watching you for sure. Your spouse is watching you. Your coworkers are watching you. The people at the club are watching you. The people on the committees that you serve in the community are watching you. It doesn't matter whether you're 30, 50, 70, or 90. Have you found yourself this morning, like Noah, wallowing in sin behind closed doors? Oh, you're the paragon of righteousness out in public. But in the private places of your tent, the inner recesses of your heart, does there need to be a change? Today would be the day for me to be shem to you and offer you the cloak of God's forgiveness to cover and forgive that sin. Maybe you are like Ham. Maybe you see other people and you ridicule them. You mock them in their sin. You belittle them. You make fun of them. You tell jokes about them. Or worse yet, you let others do it and you sit quietly by. And don't challenge that that's not a godly way for Christians to respond to someone who's fallen into sin. And by doing so, we ourselves sin just as much as the person whom we are ridiculing. 
by our attitudes, by our ungodly, unchristlike responses. Maybe we need to confess that today. Maybe we need to admit that we have not treated people with the same grace that we would want to be treated. And maybe some of us humbly can say, Pastor, as best I know how, I'm trying to live like Shem and Japheth. I know I'm a sinner. I know it would be so easy for me to turn and look on sin, but I'm trying my best to keep my back turned. I turn off the television. I turn off the radio. I turn off my internet. I put blocks and filters so that my children and others can't see things they don't need to see. I'm doing everything I can in the inner recesses of my heart to keep my heart clean before the Lord, and I'm asking God every day to help me. I want you to know that even though I don't know who you are individually, I pray for you. You see, a pastor knows that the strength of a congregation is not found in how many people sit in the pews. The strength of a, con- of a congregation is how many people are firmly committed to following Christ no matter what. That's where our strength lies. We could have 5,000 people on a Sunday morning, but if there's only 10 who are faithful, we will struggle. Or we can have 200 on a Sunday morning, and 50 of them, or 70 of them, or 100 of them be faithfully committed to serving, and we will be strong, and God will use us, and we will go forward. But what would be great would be if all 200 of us were committed to that. So my question today is, where are you in this story? Wherever you are, when we sing together, I want you to make your response based on what the Lord is saying to you today. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Will you join me? Father, in some ways, this is one of those little side stories that we tend to jump right over and get to the big things of Genesis, but it's an important story. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to recognize the fact that many times we are just like Noah. Oh, we are so righteous on the outside, but when we get behind the closed doors of our homes, of the inner recesses of our hearts and our minds, we sin. And we think no one sees, no one knows. And we need to confess that and ask for your forgiveness and to repent. Father, there are others of us who in our own self-righteousness belittle people who have fallen into sin. We mock them. We make fun of them. Or we sit quietly by and affirm as others do it. And that's a sin in and of itself as well. And we need to ask you to forgive us for that so that we can be more grace givers and more gracious in our relationships. And then, Father, there's some of us who are humbly trying our, our, our very, very best with your help to be people who provide and offer cloaks of confession to people. Not cloaks of concealment, but cloaks of confession, giving people the opportunity to acknowledge their sinfulness, to confess it before you, to abandon it, and to find a new start, a fresh start with you. Father, wherever we are today, I pray that in these few moments as we respond, that we will stand before you with the rainbow of the covenant of your promised love and grace to us surrounding us and confess to you, repent, and make a fresh start. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask it.